lest anyone think me arrogant or haughty. I cannot apologize for God's Word, and I will not. The Bible tells me that if it does not agree with the Word of God, or a man doesn't agree with the Word of God, then there is no light in him. I can agree with the prophet Agur perfectly. Surely, I am more brutish than any man, and have not the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom, nor have the knowledge of the holy. By nature, I have no ability. By His Spirit, there's lots of ability. Father in heaven, let nothing be done in the flesh, but by Thy Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. We thank Thee for Thy precious Word, and we know that it is glorious, and we know that it shut the mouths of all adversaries when our Lord Jesus Christ was on earth and used it. And Lord, help us now to comfort these saints that the problem texts thrown at them by friends, family, and enemies have easy answers. Help us now by God's grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I gave you a few examples when we concluded the first service today. I took you to Matthew 24, 13, where it said, He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. It wasn't talking about eternal life, and it wasn't requiring of you endurance in order to have eternal life. It was a warning to that generation of his destruction of Jerusalem, and the elect would be saved from that destruction, and they were. It took you to John 1:12, which is only half a sentence. The 13th verse answers the first half. Amen. Took you to Galatians 5.4. No one falls from God's grace, but they may fall from the proper understanding of grace. Took you to Revelation 3.20. Jesus stands at the door of His elect only and their churches and tells them that they are blind, naked, wretched, poor, and miserable if they don't have a personal relationship with Him. And He's willing to come into those churches and to sup with them and they with Him. If they will let him in. There's no salvation, no eternal life in Revelation 3.20. Some say that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are mysteries. We'll just never understand them. The Bible's pretty plain. It writes about God's sovereignty. We can understand it. The Bible writes about man's responsibility. We can understand that. These two things that they consider to be opposites, we don't find that they're all that confusing. And to say that they all merge together someplace when they're opposites is pretty hard to imagine. We're not looking for any pair of railroad tracks that merge into one rail in the future. That train doesn't get far. We can see them in the Word of God that when it comes to our election, our justification, our regeneration, or our glorification, it's all the work of God. And when it comes to our conversion and living a holy life, it's our work of what we're to do with that grace given to us. There's no contradictions in the Bible. The first rule of Bible study, this is how we study the Bible. We don't go buy a book on hermeneutics. We read the Bible. It says in 2 Peter 1.20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. When you read the Bible, there is nothing taught there that does not agree with the rest of the Bible. There is no interpretation you can put on any one passage, any one verse, any one chapter or book, 
that differs from the rest of the book. It all must agree together because holy men of God, men, plural, 40 authors, 40 writers, 40 transcribers, 40 secretaries, wrote the 66 books of the Bible as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. One. It has one author, 40 writers, therefore you can't take any part of it and make it stand alone. All must be reconciled, and that's what we want to do. Let's come now to seven categories, and I've got a certain number of minutes in which to do this. And I have 200 verses to drop into these categories. But all we're going to be able to do is look at a few of them. And the outline's going to be made available. Seven categories of problem texts that are thrown at us. One category are verses that are thrown at us, and we're told this is a condition in order to have eternal life. But it's a declaration of a fact, and it doesn't say anything about a condition. As an example, let's go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. These are declarations of fact that do not teach a condition for eternal life. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 6. We'll use verse 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. That is not a conditional, if you will do this, then I will respond kind of a statement. This is a declaration of a fact. A person that believes is already in possession of eternal life. He that believeth, present tense, hath, is in possession of eternal life. It doesn't tell you how you got it. It doesn't offer it to you. It doesn't say go get it. It's just a statement of fact. It's a declaration of fact. Come back to John chapter 3. And let's use that number one candy text of theirs. Verses 14 through 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a declaration of a fact. This verse is not offering eternal life to anyone. This is a statement of a fact. Please remember the context. We have Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, sitting with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has explained the necessity of being born again. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. Jesus says to him in verse... 10, art thou a master of Israel? Are you one of the chief teachers and you know not these things? Jesus said in verse 12, If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? If I've given you something so simple, why haven't you believed it? What if I tell you some more difficult things to believe? And here we go. He is about to tell Nicodemus that salvation was not limited, eternal life. Not perishing, but going to heaven. Agreed. Eternal life was not something limited to the Jews, but was going to be available to the whole world. That means the Gentiles included. God's elect among Jews and Gentiles. And Jesus is about to drop this on Nicodemus. That's point one that he's never heard before. Trust me. The Bible tells us over and over from Matthew chapter 3 on that the Jews trusted in Abraham as their father. They believe that by their descent from Abraham, 
That made them the children of God and guaranteed them eternal life. The second thing that we have here is that Jews thought of a Messiah that would come and deliver them from the Romans. He would come into Israel riding on his... They loved the idea of a white horse. But they loved the idea of a white horse on earth in which he could come and raise together Israel to be great like they had been under David and defeat the Romans. Now that's what a Jew thought. That's what Nicodemus thought. And Jesus is correcting him on both counts. First count, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now Nicodemus doesn't understand exactly what that means. But Jesus is prophesying the Son of Man, instead of riding into Jerusalem, raising an army, and throwing off Rome, is going to be hung on a pole, on a cross, just like the brass serpent was. He is not a Messiah, the likes of which you have in your mind, and that was taught to you at seminary. Second point, the reason he's coming is to die in order to provide and secure and purchase eternal life for believers. It is a declaration of a fact. Jesus is not saying here, Nicodemus, do you want to go to heaven when you die? If you want to go to heaven when you die, then this is what you've got to do in order to go to heaven when you die. He is stating a declaration of the purpose for the role of the Son of God on earth. And it was to secure the legal price and to pay it in order to secure eternal life for all believers. So we read that in verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The word whosoever does not mean if you will do this. It just means any man who. Any man he. It's just another pronoun for whoever's under consideration. Jesus died in order to secure eternal life for believers. Now, when we take John's writings... And you know, there's a whole sermon uh, of 75 minutes or so just on this verse from the book of John only. Because if we read the whole book of John, we know exactly what John means in these verses. But when we come to 1 John 5.13, he told us why he wrote, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. That's why that's worded that way. See, it's not worded that way in Matthew. There's no verse in Matthew like this. There's no verse in Mark like this. There's no verse in Luke like this. This is John, and John told us why he wrote that way. I have written these things unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. He preaches throughout his epistle and his his three epistles and his gospel that regeneration comes before belief. He's already, listen, he already told us that in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he said, if you're a son of God, it's because you were born, past tense, by God. Not of blood, Abraham. Not of the will of the flesh, your flesh. Not of the will of man, your parents. It's all of God. He's already said that. In this exchange with Nicodemus, he's already said, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. In verse 3, he's already told Nicodemus, you have to be born again before you can believe. And now he's explaining that the arrival of the Messiah that you Jews are looking forward to doing something for your nation only, and that a physical carnal thing in this world of defeating the Romans is not the truth. I'm going to lay some spiritual truth from heaven on you right now. The Son of Man is not going to be in a white horse. He's going to be up on a cross, and He's going to be up on the cross to purchase eternal life for all believers. And then John 3.16 goes on to say that all those believers are in the world. There's a whole world of them.
outside of Israel. God so loved the world, and that so does not mean He loved the world so very much. It means He loved the world in this specific way, that He sent His Son to purchase eternal life for believers. And what's a believer? It's someone who's already been born again. 1 John 5.13. Let me go over that verse again. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. John did not write to those that don't believe in the Son of God in order that they might believe in the Son of God in order to get eternal life. The Bible is written to the elect of God, and, and 1 John 5 tells us it was written to those that already believed to build up their faith and to tell them how that eternal life was purchased for them, Amen. belief of which is the evidence of it. Right. The rule, the category of verses we're looking at right now are declarations of fact. They are not offers. Jesus was not offering Nicodemus anything. He was telling Nicodemus some truth he'd never heard before. Romans 8.1 if you, if you don't think I'm taking long enough, then there's a, there's a website called www.letgodbetrue.com and if you will go in there, there, there's approximately 500 sermons where you can hear some of these verses in much greater depth. And one of them is entitled, John 3.16 Revisited. Right. And it's revisited with John's writings from every other chapter of John. And he tells you exactly what he means in 3.16. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. This is not, somebody would take, some take that verse and say you've got to walk after the Spirit in order to be in Christ and to stay in Christ. It's not teaching that. It's just a declaration of fact. Those that are walking after the Spirit are in Christ Jesus because the only ones that would ever walk after the Spirit are in Christ Jesus. It's not telling you how to get into Christ Jesus. It's not telling you how to stay in Christ Jesus. It's just a declaration. Those in Christ evidenced by the fact that they walk in the Spirit, not after the flesh, there is no condemnation on them. It is a declaration of a fact. Hebrews 5.9 I have 18 verses in this category, and we're looking at the last one right now. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. What did Paul tell me as a minister to do? And don't ever forget it, no matter what ministry you're sitting under. The Paul told Timothy, study to show thyself approved unto God. How does a minister become approved by God? Rightly dividing the word of truth. God has written his word of truth in such a way that if men do not take the pains to rightly divide it, they're going to rest those scriptures to their own destruction. They have to be pulled apart, analyzed, and put into categories in order for them to make sense. The word save does not always mean election. The word saved does not always mean born again. The word saved does not always mean glorification. We have to divide those terms. Here we have another example. Hebrews 5.9. Speaking of Jesus Christ and being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Ever heard a Campbellite take that verse? Hebrews 5.9, Brother Red. Ever heard a Church of Christ use that verse? This is what you got to do to be saved, have eternal life, and go to heaven in their book. All this is is a declaration of fact. Those people that obey the Lord Jesus Christ had eternal, or the, had eternal life offered for them by Jesus Christ. It's not stating this is how you get into Christ, this is how you stay in Christ, 
or this is how you get eternal life. It's just saying Jesus Christ authored eternal life for obedient people. Because obedience is an evidence of eternal life. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure by what? By obeying. If we take that verse any other way, if we take that verse any other way, do you know what we're going to have to teach? Eternal life by good works. you got to earn it. This is a description. This is a, a, a declaration of fact. It is not offering eternal life. Paul isn't offering eternal life to the people he's writing to. They already had it. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. Does that verse still allow that there could be some children of God that are disobedient sometimes, that he still authored eternal salvation for them? Yes, it does allow that. And you know what? You better hope that it allows that. Because have you been obedient every day of your life? Have you obeyed him at all times? No. But anyone that has obeyed him, you can count on one fact. Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation for you. Because obedience is the evidence of it. Oh, one more. Oh. We were going to have that. We were going to leave here at two o'clock to have a baptism. Two or three. First John five eleven. First John five eleven. I I think this one may may be a little plainer for you to see. Oh yeah, it's just declaring a fact. It's not it's not offering and it's not telling us what to do or anything like that. It's not teaching conditions. It's declaring a fact. First John five eleven. And this is the record. That God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. But do you know what some people will do with this verse? This life is in His Son, and you have to invite His Son into your heart in order to be saved and have the life that's in the Son. But that verse doesn't say that. It's just declaring a fact that eternal life is in the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's nowhere else. It's not in the law of Moses. It's not in the, the Levitical priesthood. It is nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. And this is the record that God has given of His Son. It's a declaration of fact. We've got to keep moving. Psalm 15. Oh, I love this one. Oh, they love their sound bites. You know, I had a brother come up to me at break time and say, that was steamroller preaching. You were crushing everything in your way. But it's not me. And he said it's not you. It's the Word of God. Amen. Now, I used in my prayer some verses from Jeremiah 23. It says in Jeremiah 23, where the prophets of Israel were telling their dreams... God told Jeremiah, let them tell their dreams. You preach my word faithfully. My word is a hammer. My word is a fire. It breaks in rock. It breaks in pieces the rocks. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? You preach my word. It's wheat. Let them have their chaff. The wind blows it away. It's garbage. It's worthless. But the preaching of God's word is like a hammer and a fire. It breaks the rock in pieces. They do not deal with the Bible fairly. Those people that that play with my sheep and scare my sheep and jerk my sheep around with their little Arminian candy sticks do not treat the Word of God fairly. Let them come into Psalm 15 and I'll choke them with this passage. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ would if He were here. Not quite as effectively, but I would try. Psalm 15. Look at this. Oh, you're going to learn about problem text right now. Look at this. Psalm 15. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? 
who shall dwell in thy holy hill. Oh, this is who gets to go to heaven. Who gets to go to heaven and be with God? I want, you want to know this one, don't you? Amen. Let's see how easy it is to get saved. Maybe we can all get saved right now. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Amen! You want to know how easy it is to get saved? Sinners, come forward. I want to show you Psalm 15. This is all you got to do in order to know that you're going to go to heaven when you die. Look at that. Why don't they deal with the Word of God fairly? Instead of going into John 1.12 and not finishing the sentence, why don't they try Psalm 15 on for size? I'll tell you about rightly dividing the Word of Truth right now. If we don't rightly divide Psalm 15, you've got to do all these things, and if you haven't done them, you're going down. Then what is this verse? It's the second category of problem text. Descriptions of evidence. Descriptions of evidence. Not, con- not conditions that you have to meet in order to obtain. Not, this is not an offer of salvation. This is a declaration of evidence. And the Bible is full of these. If you make this, if you make Psalm 15 anything else, you are in deep trouble. You have got to make it a description of evidence. Or you've got to earn your way to heaven by doing all these things. And it gets down so far, it says, speaking the truth in your heart. And you know what the Bible says about my heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And yet it says, I've got to speak the truth in my heart in order to go to heaven. And if I do all these things, then I'll never be moved. Oh, that's just one. Come over to Matthew chapter 7. For those of you that want to know a whole lot more of these, www.letgodbetrue.com. It's an outline entitled, Salvation by Works. They use sound bites. I pulled every sound bite out of the Bible that I could find like Psalm 15, that shows if you're going to take the sound bites that talk about doing something in order to be saved, oh, you're in deep trouble. Because the Bible says way too much. These are descriptions of the character of God's elect. That's what Psalm 15 is. The descriptions of the character of God's elect. Are all of God's elect perfect by that measure? No way. Are some of God's elect pitiful by that measure? Yes. But the overall description and a declaration of the evidence of being God's elect is right there. Some people don't give the evidence of being God's elect. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1, they are unfruitful and barren in the knowledge of Jesus Christ their Lord. They do not have that kind of evidence. But if you want to be able to show that you're one of God's elect and you'll never be moved and make your calling and election sure, 2 Peter will word it so similarly, if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Like this one says, if you do these things, you'll never be moved. Same thing. Same gospel. Old and New Testament. The character of God's elect. We're at Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Oh, I've heard the Campbellites on this one. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Notice, it's he that doeth the will of my Father that enters into heaven. This is a description of evidence. If we make it more than that, then we must teach salvation by works. 
And we are not going there because we've already established that salvation is not by works. Therefore, this must be a description of evidence. But while we're on it, I kind of like this verse because it says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord. There's a whole lot of people that are going to make a decision for Jesus and they're not going into heaven. Jesus doesn't care about you calling Him Lord, Lord. Read the text. Look at what it says. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The real faith that matters, that shows that you are truly God's elect, is the faith that worketh by love. It has works and actions flowing from it, not just words and a simple little decision that you prayed sometime. Oh, excuse my noises. 1 Timothy 6, 17-19 says, Paul told Timothy, charge the rich that are in this world that they be willing to communicate, ready to distribute. What does that mean? It means that they're willing to part with the stuff that really counts to the natural man. And if they do that, it says that they can lay up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, does that mean that there's even any possibility that you can buy your way into heaven at all? No, that is only the evidence of God's elect. When it says in Mark 16, 15 and 16, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Don't you try to cheat with me on that verse. Don't you try to say, well, it's really only the belief that gets you into heaven. You don't have to be baptized. You be honest with that text. I'm going to be honest with it. It says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Because that is a description of evidence. Jesus was encouraging his disciples. He that believeth not shall be damned. But those that believe... Do you know why baptism isn't mentioned there? Because if you don't believe, you're not going to get to the waters of baptism. Why would you even mention it? But he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He's encouraging his apostles to preach the gospel that the evidence of a child of God, an elect person that God has purposed to save, is that they will believe the gospel and they will be baptized in obedience to it. Shall be saved. Is that mean meaning born again? Does that mean born again comes after baptism? No way. They're already born again. That shall be saved is in the great day of judgment when they stand before Jesus Christ. They will be shown to be the elect of God and this is the evidence now. Mark 16, 15 and 16. Do you know what Bob Jones University does with that verse? They just kind of, uh, I didn't see that it said there baptism. He that believeth. Do any one of them down there at the world's most unusual university believe that you have to be baptized in order to have eternal life? No. Well, there's a few of them, but for the most part, no, they don't believe that. But they drop off that little part about baptism. You, you deal fairly with that verse. It says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Now, if we make that the getting of eternal life, do you know what we just started believing? Baptismal regeneration. Rome, here we come. Pope Benedict XVI. I confess that I've been in error all these years. And we're not going there. We're not even going to get close to that. This is a description of evidence of the children of God. Encouraging those apostles who were going to go out and guess what? Most men were going to reject their gospel. You know what Jesus said about those that would reject their gospel? They shall be damned. But those that believe it and are baptized in obedience to it, they're giving the evidence of being God's elect. That's the second category, descriptions of evidence. The first one was declarations of fact that aren't conditions or offers. The second one's a description of evidence. It's only describing the evidence. Remember Psalm 15. Enjoy it. Love it. Let's see. 3, 7, times 4 is 28, 5, 33. 
38 verses. I pull of the Bible that are used as problem texts against this that are, that are descriptions of evidence and not conditions. Let's go to the third category. The Bible sets forth Deuteronomy chapter 30. This third category is conditions that are for things other than eternal life, but people construe the people construe these verses as being conditions for eternal life. It's conditions for something else. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Can I, uh, let me ask you a question. And while you think this may be self-serving, it's you serving. Can a pastor come up with seven categories and rightly divide 200 verses during the song service? Do you know what a lot of ministers do? They'll come into a church and get their idea for what they're going to preach on during the song service. Some of them make up a little note on Saturday night You know, when they sit in their office from 8 to 11 and come up with the sermon. Can you do seven categories and rightly divide 200 verses? This is not self-serving, it's you serving. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank every one of you that support me enough so that I don't have to think about working outside this church and I can labor in the Word of God and doctrine. I commend you. And I hope you get your money's worth. And I don't mean that in any carnal or foolish sense. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says don't muzzle out the ox. You've got an ox. That's why this little box over here is called the ox box. I'm your ox. That doesn't bother me a bit. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd be as dumb as an ox. But listen, it says, don't muzzle the mouth of the ox because he's treading out your corn. Let him fill your corn crib. And you people have. You've been very faithful that way. For the testimony of our visitors, I want you to know that two times while I've been the pastor of this church, I've had to ask these people to give me a 25% pay cut. These are the best people on earth. I was so guilty sitting at home with what was in that little ox box that I had to tell them to give me a 25, not a 2%, a 25% pay cut. I'm no hero. They're the heroes. They were hurting me. My fingers were getting blisters counting it. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I say that to your credit. I want you to know that this can't be done during a song service. When I sit in a church, and we did it recently, when we sit in a church and a man was sitting there listening to the songs and got his idea for what he was going to preach from the prayer, and then he gets in the pulpit and spins that little thing into a sermon, brethren, that is not what God ever called us to do. And you say, well, I found it kind of interesting. Then you're operating at a very elementary level. You know, if we're going to operate at the right level, we've got to be able to answer these verses that are thrown at us. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Listen to this one. I hope you can figure it out yourself. I call heaven and earth, verse 19 of Deuteronomy 30, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. Is there any eternal life in that passage? No. That's God telling Israel, if you want me to bless you and take care of you as we go into the land of Canaan, you better obey me. Because if you don't, I'm going to crush you and curse you. And your children. That is an eternal life, but you'd be amazed at how this verse can work its way into sermons about eternal life. It has nothing to do with eternal life. We've already been to Matthew 24. That didn't have anything to do with Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. 
this category, which is number three, are verses that are describing conditions in order to get something from the Lord, but it's not eternal life. It's something else. Romans chapter 10. Oh, have you ever seen this at a missionary conference? Romans 10.1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. I couldn't number the times I've seen it or heard it. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Brethren, back to verse 1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Now, how does Paul want to save these Israelites? The first question somebody should say is, what Israel is Paul talking about in Romans 10.1? Because in Romans 9.6, he said they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now, which Israel is he talking about in Romans 10? Those that are not Israel or those that are Israel? If they are Israel, then they're already the elect of God and they're saved in that sense. So what sense is Paul trying to save Israel, the elect Israel, in Romans 10.1? He's trying to save them from ignorance to the knowledge of the truth. Because that's what that's exactly what it says. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. I want to find the elect of God among my elect Israelites and show them the truth of Jesus Christ has put away the law. They can quit offering animal sacrifices. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. It's salvation from ignorance to salvation of knowledge. Amen. This is conversion. This is a condition for conversion. This is what Paul labored for. Do you know, do you know what Paul said? Listen to these words. 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. God makes sure, listen, for whom he did foreknow, them he also did predestinate, whom he predestinated, them he also called, whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Do you think there's any one of God's elect that's not going to get eternal glory? Do you think? Okay. Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. They may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. There is another salvation we need, and that's to hear the truth of the gospel, lest we go through life believing a lie. And do you know what the lie was for the Jews? To be offering animal sacrifices every year and knowing that their sins were not washed away. That's what Paul wanted to do. And Paul told us that in 2 Timothy 2.10. I've heard that Romans 10 abused so many times. The people that go into Romans chapter 10 have never read Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 says they are not all Israel which are of Israel. So you've got to first of all answer what Israel is under consideration. Is Paul praying for the Israel that God's rejected? That's Romans 10. 1 Timothy 4.16 You want to ask me why I'm so worked up? I love the truth of the Bible. But whenever I hear that somebody has messed with one of my sheep on any of these verses, I get worked up. Because I want that little beady-eyed wolf to come and deal with me. Not that I have all the answers. I've already told you and confessed and admitted what two little boys in white shirts and navy blue ties did to me. But I would like to take them apart. Just a little bit. For the glory of God and for the salvation of sheep. 
Some of these poor e- emails that we get in our website that people don't know because they haven't been taught. Look at 1 Timothy 4.16. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. There's the word saved. Does that mean that Paul and Timothy still had to do a bunch of stuff in order to go to heaven? Or were Paul and Timothy talking about being faithful ministers and not leading their congregations astray in carnal living or false doctrine? That's the word saved. James chapter 5. James chapter 5. This third category are conditions. Yes, they are conditions. But they are conditions for something other than eternal life. Sometimes they may use the word save, but that word saved is used with wide latitude in the New Testament. And it needs to be rightly divided. James chapter 5. Here's another one. Verses 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. This verse is bandied about as being a condition. You've got, to, you've got to be converted in order to go to heaven when you die. Notice it's talking about the death of a soul and hiding a multitude of sins. But this is the beloved brethren that James wrote to that were already born again in James 1.18. These are his beloved brethren. This is a man who is engaged in some personal sin or he falls into some false doctrine and he needs to be brought back by another brother. Let that brother know that he which gets a brother out of his error and back into the way of righteousness where he had once stood... That man has saved a soul from death and hid a multitude of sins. You say, but it says, it says a soul from death. Oh, yeah. The Bible talks about if you even sin against your conscience, your soul perishes. Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you sin against your conscience and you have a real conscience, do you know the torture and pain that puts you through? The Bible calls it a death. The Bible says of widows who still live in pleasure, 1 Timothy chapter 5, she is dead while she liveth. Amen. How is she dead? Doesn't have eternal life? No, she's death in her fellowship with God because she's living in sin. You can save a soul from death of having lost their fellowship with God. Not their relationship with God. That's established in Christ Jesus the Lord. But they can lose their fellowship. When the prodigal's father said, this my son was dead. What did he mean? Dead to fellowship. Not dead to relationship. The boy was still his son. The county courthouse still said, that man belonged to that father. He wasn't dead physically. He was dead in, a, in, in fellowship with God. And when, you, when a brother falls into sin and we bring him back to the way of righteousness, we save him from death to fellowship. We hide a multitude of sins and we get him back into the truth. That's what that verse is talking about. Yeah, it's a condition. You bet it's a condition. A condition for conversion. Figurative language. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 22. Figurative language cannot teach conditions for eternal life. And let's look at a few examples. Acts 22 and verse 16. Here comes in Ananias. He's in the city of Damascus. God has just told him, Saul of Tarsus needs to be baptized. Whoa, wait a minute, Lord. Do you know why he's here in Damascus? He wants to put believers like us in prison. He's a chosen vessel unto me. And guess what? Right now he's praying. Why don't you go interrupt his prayers and baptize him? Here comes Ananias in, and he says in verse 16 to Saul of Tarsus, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. This is figurative language. That verse scare you? I want to tell you something. If you ever ran into a Campbellite that was skilled in that verse, he would try his best to make you eat it. He would chop you up with that verse unless you could defend it. 
Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. That verse says that you can wash away your sins with baptism. And do you know what? I believe that. I believe that every time we're, we baptize someone, we are washing away their sins. Figuratively. Amen. Can I prove it with the Bible? First Peter 3.21, oh, the laughter is the laughter for God. He's inspired a wonderful book. Amen. Listen to this. Though my favorite verse on baptism, a verse that I, I've read books on baptism that don't even include this verse. Right. You know, I love to go to the back of a book before you start reading it. You go to the back and you see what Bible verses they deal with. All new books, because they're computer generated, are easy to list in the back of the book all the Bible verses that can be found in the text. You go to the back and it's a book on baptism. You look for 1 Peter 3.21, it's not even included. I get, I get a little torqued. Because this is the most definitive verse about baptism in the whole Bible. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Sounds like this verse. The like figure, whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It saves us figuratively by showing how our sins were washed away. That is how we understand the Bible. There's whole denominations that take Acts 22.16 and teach salvation, eternal life by baptism. We compare Scripture with Scripture. First of all, when we look at Acts 22.16, here's the two-step rule of Bible study. First of all, determine what a verse cannot mean and then figure out what it does mean. We know that it cannot mean we get saved by being baptized. We know that from the rest of the New Testament that we've read and that we established this morning, which is why I took all that time. Then the second thing we do, well, what does it mean? What did Ananias mean? What did the Holy Spirit intend? You go to other verses about baptism, you find, oh, there's 1 Peter 3.21. It says that we're saved figuratively, and it's not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not washing away our sins literally. It's figuratively doing it because it's the answer of our good conscience of what Jesus Christ did for us. Amen. First Corinthians 15.29 falls into this category. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? Right. If the dead rise none at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And there's a whole denomination, much larger than us. All their people look prettier than us. All their church buildings look better than us. Ever heard the Mormon Tabernacle Choir? Ever seen the pipe organ they sing to? Have you ever seen the temple in Salt Lake City? They own the state of Utah. Ever taken a peek at that little church? Their doctrine comes out of 1 Corinthians 15.29 about baptism for the dead. That's figurative language. 1 Corinthians 15 is 58 verses long. All 58 verses are about one subject. What's that one subject? The resurrection of the body. Resurrection of the body. The resurrection of the body. And so when we come to 1 Corinthians 15.29... We know that the Apostle Paul is trying to argue for the resurrection of the body, telling these Corinthians, why have you left what I taught you when I was there? Why do you have teachers telling you now that there is no resurrection of the dead? Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise then at all, if there is no resurrection of the dead, why is there a baptism being performed in Corinth that shows a picture of death and resurrection? Amen. That's what the verse means. And only a Baptist can give it that explanation. That's why I had to tell you about Matthew Henry. Presbyterians cannot handle that text. Because, see, a Presbyterian drops a little water on the forehead and calls it a baptism. 
There's no picture of burial and resurrection when you put a little dirt on somebody's forehead. You know, when you lay somebody out in a cemetery on the ground and put a little bit of dirt here, what's going to happen in a few days? It's going to stink. There's going to be disease everywhere. They've got to be buried. And only Baptists bury people in water. 1 Corinthians 15.29 can't be handled by Rome or any of her daughters. It can only be handled by a Baptist. That figurative language there is saying, Corinthians, if you don't believe in the resurrection anymore, why are you having baptism? Because now all baptism shows is death and burial. Nouns. Let's go to category number five. Nouns that are perverted in the Word of God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And they leap all over that world and say it has to mean every single person that's ever been conceived, whether they were born or not. Miscarriages, everything is in that word world. Where in the world do they get that? Where in the world do they get that idea? The word world is used in a limited sense most of the times in the New Testament. It's not used in a universal sense. When the Bible tells us that Caesar Augustus made a decree that all the world should be taxed. Now, that's even stronger than John 3.16. We understand that it was an infinitesimally small percentage of the earth's population since Adam till now. It was only a few people living in the Roman Empire that he chose to tax. But it says all the world. You have to understand that in its context. Don't make an argument to me based on the word world. The word world is not used that way in the Bible for you to press an argument based on one word. When I can go into the Bible and show you that, it, that God hates all workers of iniquity, Psalm 5.5, 5. why do you think John 3.16 is better than Psalm 5.5? 5? It's not better. John 3.16 doesn't prove that God loves every single person that's ever been conceived in the history of the world, world without end, amen. It doesn't say that. It's just the word world. And I'll tell you how the, what the word world means. It, world, it means the world of, God's, of Gentiles bringing in the Gentiles into the family of God and the elect of God that had never been considered before. Because Romans 11 and verse 12 tells us that the word world, when used by the Apostle Paul in that place at least, means the Gentiles. That's, that's taking one noun and corrupting it and perverting it and arresting it to their own destruction because then they go against the rest of the Word of God. Oh, somebody says, what about 1 Timothy 2.4, who will have all men to be saved? Who will have all men to be saved? Okay, who will have all men to be saved and to come into a knowledge of the truth. Do all men come into a knowledge of the truth? Are all men saved? Well, then God's will must have been totally overthrown. I've never known that to happen anywhere else in the Bible because it says He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Right. What's He talking about in 1 Timothy 2.4? Let me give it to you this way. When we have the word all men, you can't press that to mean every single man that's ever been conceived in the history of the world. Paul said this, I am made all things, let's get the word all. You like the word all? I heard that at Bible conference, one of their deep speakers got up during Bible conference and said all means all, and that's all all means. Really? I wish I had him here. I don't care how many doctorate degrees he has. I will defy him and tell him that I do not believe that the Apostle Paul was a practicing sodomite. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Does that mean that Paul was a practicing sodomite in order to save the sodomites? He said, I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now that's using all three times. That's three times better than 1 Timothy 2.4. Are you going to press your argument on the word all in that place? Or does Paul, or does, or does Paul only mean 
when I can, I adjust where I can to win people. Okay? You say, well, what does it mean, all men? I'm going to let you answer it. What does it mean in 1 Timothy 6.10 when it says the love of money is the root of all evil? All, All sorts, all kinds. You bet. That's rightly dividing the word of truth. Did Adam and Eve eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because the devil paid them? It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Did David commit adultery with Bathsheba because she paid him? Did Samson go after Delilah because she paid him? Is the love of money the root of all evil, or is the love of money the root of all kinds of evil? And so when we read who will have all men to be saved, it means who will have all kinds or all sorts of men to be saved. And and that is the context. Because that passage starts out, I will therefore that prayer be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. God has elect through all all the stratus all the stratus of humanity, from kings right down to servants. You say, well, why did God use the word all? And it confuses me. So that those people that want to believe in universal redemption can come along and find a verse for themselves. Why do you think he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 29 that sounds like baptism for the dead when he knew that the Mormon church would get that and lead 30 million people in the present generation into error believing baptism for dead relatives? Why do you think God did that when he knew that was going to happen? Well, let me ask you this. Do you believe God knew that the Mormons were going to abuse that verse? Did he know that they were going to misunderstand that verse and teach a lie? Then why did he write it that way? He wanted them to believe a lie. You say, that is terrible. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, he sent them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Right. You say, that is scary. Yeah. Yes. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us, lest we believe a lie. Yeah. O Lord, save us from ever presuming upon your word. We tremble before it. Open it to us by your Spirit lest we would ever turn away from the truth and follow unrighteousness and be sent strong delusion that we would believe a lie. Have mercy upon us. This is messing around with nouns. Second Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See? They say, see? See? It says he's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But you just back up and that verse is written to those believers that already were the elect of God that Peter was writing to. The Lord is patiently waiting in coming again for all of the elect to be converted and live faithful lives. He is giving you an opportunity by long suffering to get your life straight with the Lord. That's what that passage is talking about. There is an eternal life in that. God is willing for many to perish and to go to hell because they sin in the Garden of Eden against Him and they have sinned every day of their lives. Does it say that in the Bible? It sure does. Romans 9.22 What if God, after describing Him as a potter, what if God, willing to show... Willing! What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction... You say, well, that's not fair for God to send anyone to hell. Then why don't you cry for the devil and his angels? It is most fair. He gave us the most glorious opportunity that a creature could ever have in the Garden of Eden. We defied him to his face. Verbs. The next one is verbs. Where can we go for verbs? Oh, 
I preached to you Ephesians chapter 5 recently where it says, Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. And I told you, I went to all the commentaries except our Baptist brother John Gill and every one of them said it was talking about regeneration. Ephesians 5? Are you kidding me? That's the church in Ephesus. All of chapter 1 is your elect. Chapter 2 is your regenerated. And chapter 5 is telling them to get regenerated? Awake thou that sleepest and arise from the dead. What do you think he's trying to do? He's trying to get their attention. Wake up and let's live for Jesus Christ. Let's be faithful. Let's turn away from this world. Let's turn toward righteousness. Is what it means. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verbs. Verbs are perverted and turned into conditions for eternal life when that's not what's being taught. Oh, there's so many verses. 1 John 5, 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Let's start. Let's go. Let's use this one. I know this is one you're familiar with. I've got to use ones that are visible to your eyes. Some of the other ones are harder. They're just as true. They're just harder for you to see unless you spent time in them. Whosoever believeth, that's present tense. That Jesus is the Christ is born. That's perfect tense. That's present perfect tense, meaning an action done in the past, still true in the present. Which came first, believing or being born? Being born. Now, I'm telling you that from the grammar, that the being born came first. It has nothing to do with the order in the sentence. English does not determine verb order by its place in the sentence. It determines action order by the verb tense. If it's past tense, present tense, or future tense, you can tell which comes first and which comes second. I'm telling you from the grammar. Whosoever believeth, present tense, that Jesus is the Christ, is born. That's a perfect tense construction. We would write that, has been born. Both say the same thing. Both are present perfect tense. Has been born means they're already regenerated in the present. You say, I haven't bought it yet. Okay, okay. Let's keep working from 1 John so he can show it to you. 1 John chapter... Three and verse fourteen. First John three fourteen. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. Which comes first? Passing from death into life or loving the brethren? Passing from death into life. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love present tense the brethren. Okay? Four seven. Here's the same construction as 5.1. 4.7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. Now follow. Watch. And everyone that loveth, present tense, is born, perfect tense, of God, and knoweth God. See, 4.7 uses the same kind of language as 5.1. If you love, present tense, you are born. Perfect tense. The new birth took place before you would ever love anybody. Because by nature we're hateful and, and hating one another. Right. 4.7 words it that way. 3.14 explains it to us. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren in the present. If you love the people of God simply because they are God's children, not because they're likable, not because they like you, not because you're compatible, but because they're God's children, if you have that kind of love in your heart, it's there because God regenerated you already. Do you see that? 4.7 says, Loveth is born. 3.14 told us exactly what that meant. And therefore, 5.1 means exactly the same thing. A person that believeth is born, has been born. I want, I want to do a, a little better than that. 
1 John 4.15. Everybody likes John, so let's use John. 1 John 4.15. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. What verb tense is that? Shall confess. Future tense. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him. What tense? Present tense. God dwelleth in him and he in God. Present tense. You show me a person that in the future confesses that Jesus Christ is, is the Son of God. God already dwells in him. God has to dwell in him first before he would ever confess Jesus Christ. Second Peter 2.1 tells us that there's a category of false teachers and false prophets that even deny the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Yep. That verse is used to say that there are some that Jesus Christ bought and they go to hell. Second Peter 2.1. But Second Peter 2.1 does not say that Jesus Christ bought them. It doesn't say anything about redemption from sin or from hell. It just says they deny the Lord that bought them. And if you go find the context for that that Peter borrowed from Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, that bought there is God buying Israel out of Egypt. He described it as a buying and a purchase and a redemption about 50 times in the Old Testament. And Peter, writing to Jews, is trying to aggravate the wickedness of the false teachers that were among them and were using them for filthy lucre that they even denied the Lord God that had delivered their nation out of Egypt. It has nothing to do with Jesus Christ, eternal life, or blood redemption in 2 Peter 2.1. The verb there that's being corrupted is the verb bought. Even denying the Lord that bought them. And they just leap on it. They've got the sound in their ears that the word bought must be bought from sin by the blood of Christ. But it's not. It's being bought out of Egypt. And if you go read Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 5 and 6, and then come back and read Peter, you'll say how sweet it is. Because... Moses accused those false teachers in his day of being spots. And Peter comes along in 2 Peter 2 and accuses the false teachers of his day of being spots in their feast just as well. There's a seventh category. It's just prepositions. Galatians 2.16. In a King James Bible, Galatians 2.16. I better look at it. i got to get started. You know, the first word to any verse is the most important, knowing. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Do you know how small we're getting now? We're getting down to a little preposition. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Whose faith is that? Whose faithfulness and whose obedience was it that justified us and made us righteous? The Lord Jesus Christ, we've already studied that from Romans 5.19 earlier today. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. That one is the Lord Jesus Christ. This little preposition, do you know what it's changed to in every single Bible, including the New King James Bible? Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. They take away the definite article, making it the faith of Jesus Christ, and they take away the preposition of making it Christ's faith and make it your faith in Christ. Every single Bible translation today, including the New King James. There's about ten of those in the New Testament that declare that we were, we were justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ believed God. 
Do you know how much he believed God? He was willing to go to the cross on our behalf, knowing that when it was time for him to die, he could give up his spirit, and the God that had forsaken him would receive his spirit. That, that's more faith than you'll ever exercise at any time. Right. He trusted and believed God his entire life. They corrupt it by changing that. Last verse, 2 Timothy 1.10. Maybe it's the last verse. 2 Timothy 1.10. We, re- we went over this last Sunday. That's why I want to use it so that you can see it easily. 2 Timothy 1.10. Verse 9 told us that we were saved according to God's purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Verse 9 tells us that salvation is dependent upon God's purpose and grace before the world began. Verse 10, but is now made manifest. It is now revealed and discovered and explained to us by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. To light through the gospel. The gospel does not bring life and immortality. We went over this last Sunday. It brings it to light. 2.10 Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. When you've got an also, that means you've got two things under consideration. When you've got a with connected with an also, you've got two things. Not only do we have a salvation which is in Christ Jesus, but along with that, we have eternal glory. Paul said he endured all things for the elect's sakes. You haven't heard that verse at a missionary conference, have you? Have you ever heard 2 Timothy 2, 10 at a missionary conference? They don't want to use that verse. They never use the book of Acts either. Love, for God so loved the world. The book of Acts is 28 chapters long and it tells us all the acts of the apostles in preaching the gospel and starting the New Testament churches. Wouldn't you think that they'd be using John 3.16 everywhere they went? The word love in a King James Bible occurs in 13 different variations. Love, loved, loves, loving, loving kindness. 13 times. There is not one in the whole book of Acts. The apostles never went anywhere scattering the love of God like he was some promiscuous whore in heaven. They went through preaching the gospel and calling upon men to repent. And when men repented, they told them they were the elect of God and that God had chosen them before the foundation of the world. The word love is not used in the whole book of Acts. The Bible tells us how Paul preached. I'm just backing up this verse right here. It tells us in Acts chapter 17 that Paul's manner was when he went into a city to find a synagogue and he would go into that synagogue and reason with them out of the Scriptures. That's what he did in every city. Acts 17 tells us this was his manner. He didn't go to the mall. He didn't go to the brothels. He didn't go to Bourbon Street. He didn't preach on the street corners. And he didn't hand out tracts to the homeless. He went to the synagogues. Do you know why he went to the synagogues? Because that was the only place in the cities that he went to visit where men were worshiping a monotheistic God of the Bible. Men were having the Scriptures read to them and they feared God, believed God, and trusted in God, but they didn't know about Jesus Christ yet because all they had was the Old Testament. And so Paul would go into a town, he'd go to the Yellow Pages, and he looked up where the synagogue was, and he would show up at the next Sabbath day. 
And he would walk into that Sabbath. Go read about it in Acts chapter 13. He's sitting in the synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia in the back row with Silas. He's sitting back there. And the brethren that were leading the service said, Men and brethren, you visitors from Jerusalem, do you have any word of exhortation for the people? Come on up and give us a word of exhortation. Paul got a big smile on his face. I think I might. And he came up and he preached Jesus Christ to them. Go read the book of Acts, the whole book of Acts. They'd never heard about Jesus Christ. They're reading the whole Old Testament. It's telling them the sacrificial system is how to put away their sins. They knew it didn't wash their sins away. And they knew that it told them that a Messiah was coming. And Paul said, I've seen him. He died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he's coming again. Believe on him. And be baptized in a picture of what he's done for you. And that's what we're going to go do. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. If you feel that any verse was overlooked... Call me, write me, send me an email. If you don't feel that I spent enough time on it, I'll spend the time on it with you. And we will understand these problem texts. The Bible is, the Bible is not that difficult if we approach it with wisdom. You know what, what it says about itself? All the words of my... It's all plain to him that understandeth. Amen. All the words of my mouth are in righteousness. There is nothing forward or perverse in them. They are all plain to him that understandeth. Amen. And we start out with the understanding that eternal life is a gift by the grace of God.